Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, December 6th, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. The U.S. Secret Service says Chinese hackers stole millions in COVID relief funds. Elon Musk releases the Twitter files on Hunter Biden. Multiple blasts strike Russian airfields. An anti-government protest turns deadly in Syria. Iran's attorney general says the morality police will be disbanded. A power grid attack leaves a North Carolina county in the dark. A web designer takes on Colorado's Anti-Discrimination Act. Senate candidates Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker make their last pitch in the Georgia midterm election runoff. India signals it will continue to buy oil from Russia. The Confederation of Business Industry says the UK economy will shrink in 2023. And three Chinese astronauts return to Earth. Our top story, the Secret Service reports that Chinese hackers stole millions in COVID relief money. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Mashable, New York Post, Washington Examiner, NBC and Daily Mail. In the U.S.'s first reported case of foreign state-sponsored pandemic fraud, The U.S. Secret Service has alleged that Chinese state-sponsored hacker group APT41 stole at least $20 million in government COVID relief funds. Five APT41 members that stand accused of stealing taxpayer funds from Small Business Administration loans and unemployment insurance funds from more than 12 states have been indicted on federal charges, but not extradited to the U.S. They remain at large. The alleged theft was uncovered as part of a larger investigation in which $286 million, traced back to 15,000 fake accounts at a Texas bank, were recovered in August. Roughly $87 billion in COVID emergency funds have gone missing since the pandemic began. APT41 is known for multiple tactics, including hacking legitimate software and weaponizing it against users like governments and businesses tracking public disclosures of software flaws, and targeting them before the software is updated. Roy Dotson, the National Pandemic Fraud Recovery Coordinator for the Secret Service, said, It would be crazy to think this group didn't target all 50 states. Another Secret Service source said that there are over 1,000 current investigations involving criminals defrauding public benefits programs. Five other members of APT41 were charged in 2019 and 2020 with infiltrating governments and companies around the world to conduct ransomware attacks and steal cryptocurrency. The U.S. has also blamed Chinese hackers for the Office of Personnel Management, Anthem Health, and Equifax breaches. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. And during this podcast, we always extract the spins from the facts. And for this story, we have three different spins, beginning with the anti-China narrative, and it's being provided by U.S. News & World Report. This tells us that the Chinese government not only condones, but works alongside these hackers as they infiltrate U.S. economic relief programs and steal taxpayer dollars. The Secret Service and the Department of Justice have rightly been combating groups like APT41 for years and must continue to take action against and build measures to prevent such deplorable schemes. The Global Times brings us a pro-China narrative. The U.S. for years has claimed that the Chinese government supports cyber attacks without providing a shred of evidence. This is just the latest example of Washington's smear campaign against China in an attempt to bully Beijing and maintain its global hegemony. And finally, for this story, we have an establishment-critical narrative coming from NBC News. 
This is no surprise given that the government handed out more than $800 billion in COVID funds with zero checks and balances, essentially providing an open invitation to fraudsters and criminals. Coupled with the government's awareness of past Chinese hackers' attempts to steal from relief programs, American taxpayers could understandably believe their government doesn't actually care about safeguarding their hard-earned money. Eric, when I see stories like this, it kind of shakes my faith in the idea that, that people are inherently good. Uh, someone doing something good and then someone taking advantage of it, it really just turns my stomach. Not even because of the theft, but what it does to the, the good people who need this type of thing. Want to help us improve the news? Go to www.improvethenews.org pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now back to the news. Elon Musk making the news in our next story as he releases Twitter files on suppression of the Hunter Biden story. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Forbes, New York Post, NBC, Politico, Fox News and CNN. On Friday, Twitter owner Elon Musk released the Twitter files, a series of internal communications through journalist Matt Tybee. The previously unseen files appear to show Twitter employees cooperating with efforts to suppress the New York Post story on Hunter Biden's laptop in the fall of 2020. The focal point of the communications was the Post story, which claimed the paper had access to Hunter Biden's personal laptop and could connect President Joe Biden and his son to dubious dealings with the Ukrainian energy company. Musk, who describes himself as a free speech absolutist, teased the release earlier in the week and intended it to show how Twitter's previous regime actively stifled free speech. Following the Post's publishing of the laptop story, Twitter disabled users' ability to share the tweet and banned the New York Post's account, reportedly suspecting the story may have been the result of Russian hacking. Tybee reported that Twitter coordinated with powerful entities, including both major political parties, in order to handle problematic tweets. However, the political distribution of Twitter's employees allegedly allowed for Democratic advantage. In Twitter spaces, Musk confirmed there would be a second Twitter files, released coordinated with journalist Barry Weiss and at a future date. Thanks for those facts on this social media story, Eric. We have a Republican narrative coming from Fox News. Pre-Musk Twitter was clearly biased against Republicans, frequently bowing to requests from the Biden campaign to take down tweets and accounts it didn't like. The suppression of the Hunter Biden story, which strongly affected the 2020 election, was particularly egregious, considering it proved to be legitimate. This might just be the tip of the iceberg, considering Musk's promise of more releases soon. CNN gives us a Democratic narrative for this story. These communications simply reinforce what we already knew about Twitter's difficult decision to limit distribution of the laptop story. Beyond the laptop story, there's no proof Twitter's content moderation favored Democrats or Republicans, who each made numerous requests to the platform. Despite claims from both Musk and Republicans, there was no evidence the FBI ever leaned on Twitter. Musk's big reveal was a big bust. And now our daily roundup of the conflict in the Ukraine as we reach day 285 of the fighting, where multiple blasts strike Russian airfields and 8 million Ukrainians will live below the poverty line by year's end. Here are the facts as agreed upon by TASS, Pravda, Ukraine Forum, Associated Press, and the Institute for the Study of War. On Monday, for the first time in nine months of war, multiple blasts were reported deep in Russian territory. While Ukrainian attacks have routinely targeted munition depots and fuel tankers in the Russian border regions of Bryansk, Kursk, and Belgorod, 
Monday's blasts were reported hundreds of miles within Russia's borders. One blast was reported at the Diaghilevo airfield in the region of Ryazan, where a fuel tanker supposedly exploded, killing three people and injuring six others. The second struck the Angles airfield in the Saratov region, reportedly damming two Tupolev Tu-95 bomber jets. An unspecified number of servicemen were said to be injured. Both attacks are suspected to have been carried out with drones, though this is yet to be confirmed. A further Ukrainian attack was reported in the western Luhansk city of Alchevsk on Monday. An official from the Luhansk People's Republic, or LPR, said at least 10 civilians were killed in what they said was a HIMARS rocket attack. In Russian attacks, one civilian was killed in the city of Kupiansk in Kharkiv region on Monday. One civilian was also killed and three more were injured in attacks on the city of Kriviri in the Dnipropetrovsk region, while two more civilians were injured in Donetsk. Strikes were also recorded in the regions of Sumy, Cherniv, and Zaporizhia, without reports of civilian casualties at this stage. Meanwhile, the U.S. Director of National Intelligence, Avril Haines, on the weekend told the Reagan National Defense Forum in California that the war in Ukraine is running at a reduced tempo, and that both Russia and Ukraine are expected to refit, resupply, and reconstitute in the winter months before renewed fighting in the spring. However, that assessment was challenged by the Institute for the Study of War, or ISW, a U.S. military think tank, which said senior U.S. government officials are mistakenly identifying the optimal window of opportunity for Ukraine to conduct more counteroffensives as the spring rather than winter, despite Ukrainian officials' statements to the contrary. Elsewhere, Anna Gerd, vice president of the World Bank, told Austrian publication Die Presse that according to their figures, 8 million people in Ukraine will be living below the poverty line by the end of 2022, an increase from 2% to 25% of the population in the last year. Those were the facts. And for this story, several spins have emerged, beginning with Narrative A coming from Associated Press. As the winter months continue to set in, the tempo of fighting will reduce. Both Russia and Ukraine will use the opportunity of the coming winter months to replenish their armies before the commencement of further offensives in the spring. And Narrative B comes from the Institute for the Study of War. Winter will not see a decline in this conflict as frozen ground enables heavy vehicles previously restricted by the autumn mud to advance. Ukrainian forces will not pause fighting as such cessation would enable Russian troops to restrengthen. All indicators point to offensives ramping up in the cold weather. And Guardian gives us a narrative C. As winter arrives and temperatures continue to plunge, the most important question is not that of the relative strategic advantage of fighting in winter months. The key to this conflict will become which force has better morale and is best equipped to fight effectively in the bitter weather. And we have a statistics-based nerd narrative on this story coming from our friends at the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there is a 50% chance that there will be at least 7.78 million internally displaced Ukrainians by the end of 2022 based on UN estimations. I can't imagine how miserable that must be. Fighting a war in and of itself is horrible, and then you just cover it with winter and frigid cold temperatures. It's got to be just excruciating. I'll tell you what, I was at MetLife Stadium the other day for the Giants football game, and it was really chilly out, and I was I was suffering then, and I had two hot chocolates. I had a hot chocolate on each hand. I mean, I can't <laughs> even imagine I know, what was right? going on there. I, I didn't dress warm enough, it's true, but uh, like, come on, man. Yeah. yeah it's 
the cold, I mean, honestly, the cold or the hot just makes everything worse. Oh, yeah. And we I'm think a, we have it bad. I'm a 71 degree guy. Let's just keep it there. Little sunshine. I'm good. We turn our attention to southern Syria, where an anti-government protest turns deadly. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, al Mayadeen, TRT World, BBC News, Reuters, and NPA Syria. Dozens of angry protesters chanting anti-government slogans stormed the governor's office in the southern Syrian city of Suweda on Sunday and set fire to parts of the building amid a heavy exchange of gunfire, the authorities and witnesses reported. A protester and a police officer were allegedly killed, according to both independent and state media. It's unclear who shot first, as local independent media has reported that security forces fired into the crowd. According to the Syrian interior minister, however, the protesters shot first, firing randomly and ultimately hitting other protesters. A local activist reported that four others were taken to the hospital with gunshot wounds. The Syrian Observatory for Human Rights reported that the protesters also tore down a large picture of Syrian President Bashar al-Assad from the building's facade. Reuters, citing witnesses, reported that more than 200 people gathered around the building calling for the overthrow of Syrian President Bashar al-Assad amid worsening economic conditions, food insecurity, and an energy crisis. Syria's interior ministry in response has vowed to, quote, pursue the outlaws and take legal measures against them. The Suweda government is Syria's Druze heartland, a community that has largely stayed neutral in the country's civil war, which has killed nearly 500,000 people. The government is notoriously insecure, as the government's security presence in the region is minimal. Thanks for those facts, Eric. The Council for Foreign Relations has our Narrative A on this story. Though it has been almost 12 years since the onset of the Syrian revolution, Syrians from all walks of life continue to demand freedom and dignity. Meanwhile, the Assad regime has only become more authoritarian and barbaric, killing hundreds of thousands and destroying its own country just to stay in power. As Syria's financial condition worsens and the state fails to provide basic amenities, such protests will only escalate. Assad's grip on power is hanging by a thread. Thank you, Scott. Narrative B coming from New Arab. It would be dangerous to call the criminal gangs sabotaging the region protesters. These armed thugs have become professionals in all illegal activities, including drug trade and kidnappings, and seek to destabilize an already insecure region of Syria. Though the government has chosen to take a hands-off approach in Suweda, it cannot allow outlaws to run wild, killing civilians and members of the security forces with abandon. Staying in the Middle East, Iran's attorney general signals morality police to be disbanded. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Global News, Al Jazeera, BBC News, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and The Wall Street Journal. Iranian Attorney General Mohammad Jafar Montazeri reportedly announced on Saturday that Iran's so-called morality police, the Gasht-e-Ershad, is being disbanded. In September, the arrest of Masa Amini for allegedly violating the country's mandatory dress code for women and her subsequent death in police custody led to persistent protests against the Iranian government. Referring to Iran's interior ministry, the authority in charge of the morality police, Montazeri said that the same authority which has established this police has shut it down, according to Iranian media reports. Meanwhile, Iranian protesters on Sunday called for a three-day strike this week over Amini's death. Official confirmation from other government sources on Montezeri's reported statements about the morality police, responsible for monitoring moral security, is still pending. 
the requirement for women to cover their hair with a hijab became mandatory shortly after the 1979 Islamic Revolution. Montazeri also reiterated that the judiciary would continue to enforce restrictions on so-called social behavior. Earlier, he said the dress code law would be reviewed and a decision issued within 15 days. Meanwhile, the morality police are said to have halted enforcing the law and other government forces have stepped in. The morality police, established in 2005, is known for patrolling public places to reprimand women for violating Iran's dress code, issuing fines and verbal warnings, and detaining women who break the law. On Sunday, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken welcomed the latest reports on the disbanding of the organization, but warned against premature optimism. According to human rights groups, more than 400 Iranians have been killed and 15,000 detained amid the ongoing protests. Washington, the EU, and the UK have imposed sanctions on Iran's morality police in response to Tehran's crackdown against protesters. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. As we look at the spins that have emerged, the first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from Iran International. The despotic Iranian regime is finally bowing to pressure from the brave protesters. The potential disbandment of the morality police is an unprecedented move. And as the first major policy reversal from the government, it is a testament to the effectiveness and power of the protests. The demise of the state-enforced hijab would be a resounding victory for the women of Iran. Contrast that with this establishment critical narrative from Mayor News. A credulous Western media has taken the remarks of a government official out of context once again. The attorney general does not have the authority over the morality police and continues to express his support for the dress code. Reporting has continued to undermine Iran by supporting the violent protests and engaging in information warfare by distorting the facts at hand. And we do have a nerd narrative that has emerged from this story coming from the Metaculous Prediction community. It says that there is a 62% chance the morality police is disbanded by 2024. Can you imagine if the U.S. had a morality police? I mean, I would invest in the handcuffs manufacturer. Yeah, I would. Uh, they have for-profit prisons, you know, like I, I would I would invest in those. Probably from my prison cell, I'd be investing right. in it. And we turn our attention back to the United States as an attack on a power grid leaves a North Carolina county in the dark. And here are the facts as agreed upon by CBS, NBC, CNN, New York Times and Fox News. On Sunday, authorities announced that at least 40,000 people in Moore County, North Carolina, were left without power after two power substations were damaged by gunfire. Duke Energy, the power supplier, said that power may not be fully restored until as late as Thursday. County Sheriff Ronnie Fields said a suspect or suspects breached security fencing and opened fire, disabling the facilities and causing the outages. The county declared a state of emergency and imposed a 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. curfew, also closing schools on Monday and creating a shelter for residents who require electricity for medical equipment or heating. The sheriff's office, in coordination with agencies such as the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation and the FBI, is investigating it as a criminal occurrence. Fields said it was targeted. It wasn't random adding the person or persons who did this knew exactly what they were doing. North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper said in a tweet, I appreciate the swift response from local and state emergency responders. An attack like this on critical infrastructure is a serious, intentional crime, and I expect state and federal authorities to thoroughly investigate and bring those responsible to justice. Some have speculated that the incident was in response to an LGBTQ drag show 
being hosted by Sand Hills Pride in the area. The group said they received violent threats ahead of the event, but none indicating a planned attack on the power grid. Until the outage can be resolved, local law enforcement is alerting residents to stay off the roads if possible, and if not, to treat all intersections as four-way stops for safety. Thanks for those facts, Eric. Occupy Democrats brings us Narrative A. It would be foolish for authorities not to look into a local right-wing group that celebrated news of the attack. The founder of the Moore County Citizens for Freedom, whose members are known to have attended the January 6th riots, applauded the power outage as an act of God to stop the local drag show. These extremists must be investigated. And Yahoo Finance gives us Narrative B. Instead of pointing fingers while the investigation is still ongoing, more must be done to put preventative measures in place. Though rare, attacks like this show how vulnerable power grids still are in the U.S. The government must focus on building walls so gunmen can't aim directly at transformers and circuit breakers, and establishing a national response so that state and local authorities aren't left alone when their jurisdictions are attacked. The Supreme Court hears a challenge to the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, CBS News, NBC News, CNN, and NPR Online News. The U.S. Supreme Court on Monday heard oral agreements in a case involving Denver-based web designer Lori Smith, a conservative evangelical Christian. Smith is seeking an exemption from Colorado's Anti-Discrimination Act in relation to taking on LGBTQ customers. Smith contends that the right to free speech enshrined under the U.S. Constitution's First Amendment exempts artists, including web designers, from anti-discrimination laws, and that Colorado's law forces her to undertake work that conflicts with her religious beliefs. Smith intends to expand her business, 303 Creative, to include wedding websites and wants to tell the stories of opposite-sex couples through God's lens, as she strongly believes that marriage is between one man and one woman and that union is significant. Colorado's Anti-Discrimination Act forbids businesses open to the public to discriminate based on sexual orientation, race, gender, or religion. It also restricts organizations from displaying any notices to that effect. The Supreme Court legalized gay marriage in 2015 and expanded protections for LGBT workers under federal law in 2020 when it decided the 1964 Civil Rights Act also protects gays, lesbians, and transgender Americans. The conservative majority court reportedly appeared sympathetic towards Smith on Monday. A final decision is expected by the end of June. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. Let's take a look at the spins, beginning with a left narrative coming from New York Times. A ruling endorsing Smith's free speech arguments, intentionally or not, could lead to widespread discrimination against the LGBTQ community and undermine the entire purpose of anti-discrimination laws. If the conservative so-called artists are granted a license to discriminate, they would be free to propagate bigotry and even legally hang out signs in the future that refuse to serve Muslims, African Americans, or women. Contrast that with the right narrative spin. Should Smith, who serves LGBTQ clients in other areas, be imprisoned for her refusal to work against her religious beliefs? Denying Colorado artists the right to choose their customers could affect the fabric of the U.S.'s free and diverse society. The First Amendment doesn't give the state the power to coerce its citizens to renounce their religious beliefs in favor of views they don't agree with. Metaculus is giving us a nerd narrative for this story as well. It says that there's a 21% chance that an openly LGBTQ person will be elected president of the United States by the year 2041. 
The U.S. midterms still generating news as Georgia Senate candidates make last pitch before runoff. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, New York Times, CNN, and Capital B. Incumbent Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock and Republican challenger Herschel Walker made their final pitches to voters last Sunday, two days before the December 6th U.S. Senate runoff. More than 1.85 million Georgians have already cast their votes during early voting. Warnock, a pastor at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, used his time at the pulpit Sunday to remind his parishioners to vote and joked that they have a choice between two candidates whose last name starts with W. Walker spent Sunday with Senator Lindsey Graham, Republican of South Carolina, and focused his time denouncing COVID restrictions and vaccine mandates. While Warnock received support from former President Barack Obama, the GOP's central figure, Donald Trump, steered clear of the campaign trail. A major part of Walker's message has been blaming inflation on the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan, which Warnock voted for. The two are also starkly divided on abortion, policing, and voting laws. The candidates are in this runoff because neither received a majority of votes during the November 8th general election, which finished with Warnock ahead of Walker 49.4% to 48.5%. Libertarian Chase Oliver, who isn't part of the runoff, took 2.1%. Although a recent CNN poll gave Warnock a slight lead, high turnout and enthusiasm on both sides make it difficult to project a winner. A Warnock win would give Democrats an outright 51-seat majority, but a Walker win would give Republicans a better chance at thwarting President Joe Biden's agenda. So far, $400 million has been spent, by far the most expensive race in the 2022 campaign cycle. Political story gives political narratives. Let's start with the Republican narrative from Town Hall. Warnock's record as a senator proves he doesn't care about Georgians' economic well-being or their safety. His votes will cost taxpayers, who will be easier targets for IRS agents, more of their money. And the state will be less safe because of his vote to reject adding more Border Patrol agents. Walker is offering Georgians relief from government theft. And Vanity Fair gives us the contrasting Democratic narrative. There's a long list of reasons not to vote for Walker. He supports restrictions on abortion access, places the rights of gun owners over safety, and might not even be a resident of Georgia. Warnock cares about what Georgians care about, and the same most certainly cannot be said for Walker. We've got another nerd narrative from Attaculus. This one says that there's an 80% chance that Raphael Warnock will defeat Herschel Walker in the 2022 Georgia Senate runoff. India will continue to buy Russian oil despite the G7 price cap. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, The Times of India, OilPrice.com, The Week, and Indian Express. India's Minister of External Affairs, Subramanyam Jaishankar, signaled on Monday that the country will put its energy needs above pressure from Western governments and continue to buy oil from Russia. Jaishankar also provided Moscow with a list of products available for trade with India in order to narrow the trade deficit between the countries. Russia is India's largest supplier of oil and India is looking to rebalance its trade, while Moscow is suffering from acute shortages of materials amid Western sanctions. Despite the EU imposing sanctions on Russian oil by capping the price at $60 per barrel, India said it does not intend to join the effort. India and China, who have both refused to unify in sanctions against the Kremlin, have been buying Russian oil at a 40% discount compared to the Brent crude oil price, well below the $60 EU price cap. Jai Shankar condemned the EU's request that India follow the price cap guidelines during a meeting with German Foreign Affairs Minister Annalena Baerbock. 
He also accused the EU of hypocrisy as it imports six times the amount of Russian oil as India does. While the U.S.'s goal is to reduce Russia's oil revenues, it says that India's decision to buy Russian oil is a sovereign decision and will not affect the country's relationship in terms of trade and defense. Three spins emerging from this story, Scott. We begin with a pro-establishment narrative. It's coming from Politico. India continues to sit on the fence and tacitly support Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine. As other countries look to reduce the amount of oil they buy from Russia, India has increased its imports tenfold since Putin's invasion. India is putting profit above a principled and necessary show of opposition to Putin's attempted imperialist expansion. And NDTV brings us the establishment critical narrative. India is a sovereign nation that will continue to put its energy needs ahead of G7 demands. While India respects other countries' decisions to implement sanctions, it must work to provide the necessary energy to its people. New Delhi will not bend its knee to hypocritical countries that import more Russian oil than India does. And Metaculus is giving us a nerd narrative saying there's a 98% chance that Russia will be the most sanctioned country in the world by February 22, 2023. The United Kingdom economy expected to shrink in 2023 and risks a lost decade without action, says the Confederation of Business Industry. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, BBC News, CNN, Independent, Guardian and Straits Times. The UK's economy is expected to shrink by 0.4% in 2023, the Confederation of Business Industry forecast on Monday. A combination of inflation and economic stagnation, known as stagflation, is the primary reason the business lobby group expects the UK economy to continue to contract. It believes the conditions could lead to a, quote, lost decade of growth. The CBI has called for more flexible immigration policies to address worker shortages and permanent tax breaks to encourage investment and to tackle the predicted contraction. CBI Chief Tony Danker accused UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak of, quote, going backwards on the green growth agenda by failing to lift a ban on onshore wind farms. Danker also accused the Conservative Party leader of lacking an overall growth plan to address economic inactivity, childcare, worker shortages, and low productivity. In October, Danker, who leads the UK's largest business lobby group with 190,000 members, warned the government against a doom loop of public spending cuts and tax rises. The Office of Budget Responsibility has been even less sanguine than the CBI regarding the UK's economic prospects. In November, it forecasts that the UK economy will shrink by 1.4% in 2023. Yahoo Finance brings us the right narrative spin on this story. While last month's announcement of £55 billion in spending cuts was necessary to stabilize the economy, it won't encourage growth. The government must stimulate investment with substantial tax breaks for businesses that spend domestically, bring the UK closer to the EU by finalizing a proper deal over Northern Ireland, and address the shrinking workforce. Only achieving this clear criteria will boost growth and avoid a severe economic downturn. Leftfootforward.org gives us a left narrative. The government's latest round of tax raises and spending cuts are a massive assault on low- and middle-income families. The UK economy has already been severely damaged by 12 years of austerity, the destruction of public services, unrestrained corporate profiteering resulting in a 14.2% rate of inflation, and labor shortages caused by Brexit and related xenophobia. The UK needs a new direction away from the continued assault on consumer, worker, and environmental protections. 
We've got another nerd narrative. This one says there's a 50% chance that the UK's annual inflation rate will be at least 5.34% in 2023, according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. And our final story, Chinese astronauts return to Earth. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by ABC, NPR Online News, CTV, The Associated Press, BBC News, and Reuters. On Sunday, three Chinese astronauts returned to Earth after six months aboard China's new space station, the Tiangong, or Heavenly Palace. China's space agency declared the mission a complete success. Commander Chen Dong and teammates Liu Yang and Kai Zhush said they felt well after landing at the Dongfeng site in North China's Inner Mongolia Autonomous Region. Their mission was to oversee the final construction of the space station, which they completed in November. Before leaving the space station, they overlapped for almost five days with three colleagues who arrived last Wednesday on the Shenzhou 15 mission for a six-month stay. It was the first time China had six astronauts in space at once. Chen exited the capsule first before saying he was very fortunate to have seen the completion of the space station during his time in space, adding, Like meteors, we return to the embrace of the motherland. The three astronauts supervised five rendezvous and dockings with various spacecraft, including one carrying the third and final space module. In addition, they performed three spacewalks, beamed down a live science lecture from the station, and conducted a series of experiments. China has now completed its own space station 11 years after being excluded from the International Space Station because of U.S. objections to the Chinese space program's close ties to the military wing of the Communist Party. Scott, thank you for the facts. And we have a couple of spins that have emerged. A pro-China narrative is the first one coming from First Post. With the completion of Tiangong, Beijing's space program is now an equal player with the U.S., Russia, and Europe. In terms of scientific and commercial aspects, the addition of new players will only have a positive impact given that competition inevitably speeds up innovation. This is a win for everyone. And The Hill brings us an anti-China narrative. The more China prioritizes space, the more of a problem it becomes for U.S. national security. Beijing's recent significant advances in space technology are alarming to the U.S. and its allies, because whoever leads in space sets the rules. Besides, China has teamed up with Russia for a slate of space missions and initiatives. This must be monitored. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, December 6th, 2022. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. You can download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. And if you'd like more information on Improve the News, visit our website, improvethenews.org. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Thank you.